and greet one another. We'll start here in just a second. All right, both our people here greeted each other, so I guess we can move on. Um, it is good to be here in the house of the Lord. It is good. It is good to bask in the reality that we are secure in Him. No matter what's happening in this crazy, crazy world that we're living in, God's got it. He has absolutely got it. And the peace that passes understanding just inhabits our hearts. At least it has been doing that for me. I have a few announcements to um, give to you this morning. And, and Carly, um, wave your hand or something if I'm missing something that's important, okay? Um, next Sunday will be our first Sunday back together. Yay. A few people are clapping their hands. <laughs> our service is going to start at 9.30. It's important. 9.30. Not 9 a.m., but 9.30. And we will continue streaming, live streaming our services for those who don't feel comfortable yet in, in gatherings of 10 or more. Uh, we have a capacity to gather as 48 people here and still be socially distanced properly. Um, but um, if you want to be part of the 48, that would be great. Okay, and we'll get Nate and he'll teach you to skate. All right. The list of preparations and cautions that we're taking to ensure that we stay safe and healthy is, is far too long than what I can give you in this announcement. But we do have it posted on our website, so I encourage you to go there and take a gander at it. Uh, the short list is this. We will be asking everyone to wear a mask. All of our uh, ushers and elders and so forth will be wearing masks. Uh, we will ask that you wash your hands and respectfully social distance from each other. Respectfully socially distance from each other. And, of course, there's a whole lot more than just that. So why don't you go online and check it out, okay? All right. Do we have a Happy Mother's Day slide by any chance that we can put up? If we don't, that's all right. All right. Well, today is Mother's Day. And uh, Carly, Sherry, Angel, Happy Mother's Day to you, okay? Um, I'm, so, I'm sorry that we, we are under quarantine because um, the men's group was planning on handing out 24 karat gold diamond bracelets to all our moms just as a gift of appreciation. <laughs> Maybe next year, okay? Maybe next year. But I want to share something briefly here before I get into our study. Uh, George W. Bush, he tweeted out this morning, um, on Mother's Day, we pay tribute to the extraordinary women whose guidance and unconditional love shape our lives and our future. Okay, isn't that nice? Almost sort of poetic, very diplomatically put. Okay, um, but really lacking in what you really want, right? Time and money time to be by yourself and money to spend on yourself. I'm sure that many of you would not put, turn that away. Well, <clears throat> what I want to ask you moms, after reading that, do you feel extraordinary? 
Are you feeling you are adequately guiding your children? Are you showing them the unconditional love? And what shape are they in? What does their future look like, assuming they avoid the state penitentiary? Let me affirm you, okay? You're doing more right than wrong. You got a tough gig, but you're handling it better than you think you are. You're doing a good job. And how do I know? I'm gonna give you five reasons how I know this is so. First of all, you are the mom, and the mom knows best. Is that true? You're absolutely right, it's true. You have to mitigate <clears throat> the decisions of all the people in your children's lives, and when it comes to keeping them safe, loved, and prepared for life, no one does it better than you. Number two is that you make time to help others. That's right. I don't know any parent who has free time. Do you have free time? You got free time? No, no, no. We're all scheduled to the teeth, whether you work outside the home or not, or have one kid or four. <clears throat> when you take on a task to lend a hand, <clears throat> it's really nice. And you're setting an awesome example for your kids and we value your time and we appreciate your sacrifice. The third reason I know is that your kids are so well behaved. Okay, I know that's a lie. All right. Um, but I also know that they can pull it all together when grown-ups that they're not familiar with are around. Uh, you might be wrestling with the banshees at home, but you've got to have done something right if you're not constantly disciplining them in public. But when they do have an epic throwdown in public, you do your best to remain calm, though you're flaming with embarrassment and frustration and that overwhelming feeling that makes you feel like you failed as a mom. You haven't failed. You've persevered and you've remained strong and you've kept the bridge open to later years when they will want to talk and seek you and they won't be afraid to. Plus, you're not gonna have to hear from Child Protective Services, so that's a good thing, okay? The fifth reason I know that you got it going on is that you're raising a mini-me. Not mini-me, but mini-you. Now, your jerk reaction is going to be, well, I really don't want to be raising a version of myself, right? Um, with the same hang-ups and the quirks and the insecurities, but, but listen, I know you want your daughter or your son to be better than you are. That's every parent's wish for their children. But understand something, your self-described flaws are all internal stuff, all right, which people aren't seeing. What I'm commenting on is something positive in your child's behavior that reminds me of you. And I like what I see. You're a delight, and by natural extension, so is your child. So, I'll quote Mr. Bush one more time. Now maybe you can take it with ears that are opened to your heart for what it is meant to me. On this Mother's Day, I want to pay tribute to the extraordinary women whose guidance and unconditional love shaped their children's lives 
and future. Okay? Happy Mother's Day. Father, we come to you in the name of your son. We give you much thanks for our moms. We give you thanks that in your wisdom, you provided them with the nurturing care and wisdom and discernment to bring into this world the next generation, to guide it, to direct it. They don't do it alone, Father, but they do the heavy lifting. We're thankful for them and pray that you would bless the work of their hands, that you would comfort them in their insecurities, and that you would show yourself strong on their behalf. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open to Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29. We're going to start a part one of a hopefully just a two-part study entitled Preparation for Consecration. What's happening in chapter 9 is basically a big planning party, if you will. God is showing Moses everything that he's going to need to pull off the ceremony of consecration of Aaron and his sons. Now, I don't know how many ceremonies you have been to in your lifetime. Some ceremonies are boring as all get out, you know, they give you an excuse to take a nap. Some are very profound, they'll even bring tears to your eye and great joy to your heart. I have in my hand here, I don't know if you can see it or not, but there's a picture of it behind me, right? This is a, a medal that my father earned in his career in the Air Force. It is the Distinguished Flying Cross. If you're familiar with military, you know that that is the highest honor that the Air Force can bestow upon a serviceman, active or deceased a distinguished flying cross. Um, he earned this by some heroic actions that he took in Vietnam when he was flying the DC-3s. They were called Spookies or Goonie Birds. They were gunships, airships. And the engine caught fire twice. And he climbed out in air and put those fires out twice. Now, I knew nothing about this. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know he earned this medal until I officiated at his memorial after he had passed away. And this is back in 1968 and 69 when he earned this medal. I had no clue. I wish I had because it would have made the ceremony much more significant to me. I was just a, barely a teenager, and I went to the base with him. He's in his dress blues. He's got all of his ribbons on his chest. Uh, there is a gathering of, of airmen 
around to observe it. There's a, a crowd of people. There's a marching band playing the Star Spangled Banner. And then the base commander, um, Colonel something and the other, whose name I don't even remember, comes and, and gives a speech. And I'm sitting there, and the only thing I'm thinking about is it's hot. I want to go home. They got me in this monkey suit. It was a, you know, my little suit with my tie. And I'm there watching my father receive an award. And for all I knew, it was just a perfect attendance award. I had no clue what he was getting a medal for. And so I don't remember much about that ceremony, its significance, but what I do remember and what really stands out in my mind is the poor airmen standing in the back who buckled and passed out and fell flat on his back during this ceremony. Now that, that was memorable. But I wish, I wish I'd known. It would have been much more significant. It would have been much more important to me. And maybe I could have given my dad a break or two for some of the things. Um, ceremonies have powerful influences psychologically and socially. One writer said, ritual and ceremony are powerful bonding tools. They result in a sense of community, a feeling of unity, far beyond what you might expect. And I really love this quote, the power of ceremony marries the mundane to the sacred. The water turns to wine. That's beautiful. Ceremonies are the time and place where people get serious. Doesn't mean they're not joyful and somber occasions always, but just that they are, are profound. Socially, we're saying as a collective culture, this is momentous, this is noteworthy, worthy. this is significant. That brings us to Exodus 29 because God is planning a ceremony. Now the actual ceremony doesn't take place until you get to Leviticus chapter eight, but they're planning. This is a ceremony of consecration. It's detailed and it's significant. It's profound and it is sacred. God has called Aaron and his sons to serve him and the people as a family of high priests. They will minister to God on behalf of the people and minister to the people on behalf of God. That's a special calling. It's an exclusive calling. Not just anybody can apply to be the high priest. As a matter of fact, you have to be part of the family of Aaron to do it. Numbers 18.7 says, I give your priesthood to you, talking to Aaron. This is God speaking to Aaron. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service. Not as a gift because of your service, but as a gift of service. Your service is your gift. Do you get that? It's a special privilege. It's a special honor. One of the things my father was offered after he um, got out of Vietnam and they wanted him to re-up, you know, sign on for a few more years, was to be the um, flight engineer on Air Force One. That was what they offered him. He, he didn't do it, but 
that would have been a great honor. That would have been a high privilege. Well, we're not going to be flight engineers, but we are priests and kings. Well, how do I know about that? Well, 1 Peter 2.5. Turn there real quick. Keep your thumb where you're at in Exodus and turn over to 1 Peter. Head back towards the end of the Bible and look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at two verses. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, now look at, just go down a few verses to verse 9. Got it? You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You need to meditate for a moment on that verse. You need to wake up and you need to listen and you need to look at that verse. Now put your name in there or just put the word I. But I am part of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that I may proclaim the praises of him who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of my goals for this sermon is that you appreciate so much more than you do now your calling, your high calling. We have been given this high office as a gift of special privilege of service, as a special privilege of service. And we should take it seriously and appreciate it for the profound sacred honor that it is. Now, as a way of review, chapter 28, remember when we were there, God was laying out Aaron and his sons ensemble so that they could get outfitted for this whole ceremony. And now we get to the ceremony planning itself. Chapter 29, you can turn back there now. We will see the purpose of the ceremony and what a consecration ceremony requires. Okay, those are the two things. The purpose of the ceremony and what the ceremony requires, okay? So let's start with the purpose of the ceremony in Exodus 29, verse one, first part of it. This is what you shall do to them. Well, who's the them, guys? Aaron and his sons. This is what you're gonna to do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. To hallow, that's an old word, isn't it? We don't use that too much. We might say hollow, but we don't say hallow, not too often. Okay, hello, hello, how you doing? Okay. The purpose of the ceremony is to hallow Aaron and his sons. That means basically to set Aaron and his sons aside for God's exclusive purpose. Hallow is a synonym of the word consecrate. As a matter of fact, that's the definition for hallow, to consecrate. 
Now, I want to show you something here. This is something that my elementary school students at Tomahawk Elementary could teach you. What the word consecrate means when you break it down in the Latin, all right? Consecrate is made of three Latin word cells. The prefix is con, the root is secra, and the suffix is eight, A-T-E. Not like you just et some, but eight, A-T-E. The word cell con, the prefix, means together, all right? Think of it, together. You know, you've heard the word congress before, right? The word con means together, right? The word gress means to walk. Like an egress, it's a, it's a place to walk or where you walk. So congress is supposed to walk together. Somebody ought to tell them that, right? But consecrate is together. Sacra means sacred. That's where we get our word sacred from in the Latin. And eight, the, the suffix means to make. So you put it together and what do you get? To make together sacred. To make together sacred. It's what consecrate boils down to. So Aaron and his sons, what they are doing are being consecrated. They are joining Yahweh for divine purposes, for his exclusive use, ministering to him as priest and representing him to the people as priests. Okay? Now, by going through the ceremony, they're committing... <clears throat> by going through the ceremony, <clears throat> they are committing to, with deliberate determination and unwillingness, to serving God and his interests and only his interests. A priest isn't going to be allowed a side job <clears throat> as a... Um, Influencer on Facebook, okay? They're exclusive for the priesthood. Now, we see Jesus as our example, as you would expect in all of this. Turn to the book of John, please. <clears throat> the book of John, starting in chapter 4. In John chapter 4, after ministering to the Samaritan woman and the disciples coming up to him to give him something to eat, tells them, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God, who sent me and from finishing his work. Now, go to chapter 5, look at verse 30. Chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Okay? John 6.38. See a pattern developing here? John 6.38. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. 
All right, John 8, 29. John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Now, a verse that's not up there, and you might want to check it out later, is John 17, 4. And this is what is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He says, I brought glory to you, speaking to the Father, praying to the Father. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. It's not far-fetched to say that the master passion of Jesus' life was to do the Father's will. He had only the Father's interests in mind. He was deliberately determined to do God's will and only his will. Do you see that? Okay, Pastor D, why are you camping on that point? What's that got to do with me? You have a high honor set before you, a golden opportunity, an exclusive calling, a prestigious privilege to serve God as a priest and king. And it requires that you only be interested in his interests. That's consecration. What's the Father's interest? Are you ready? Got a totally long list here. There's 20 things. Ready? Number one, glorify the Son. And that's it. That's all 20 of them. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Put it to it. That's what it's all about. Last week, we taught about that in depth, didn't we? In Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so I, I, if, you know, if you want a more in-depth understanding of what that means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I, I suggest you get that teaching. But for us here... In Exodus 29, the purpose of the ceremony is to dedicate Aaron, his sons, and his descendants to the priesthood where they will give undistracted attention to ministering to the Lord and to his people. Okay? I think we've established that pretty well. Good. Let's go to what's required for consecration. Look at verses 1 through 3. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour and you shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. Okay, first of all, the ceremony for consecration is going to require animal sacrifice. To make sacred Aaron and his sons, there needs to be sacrificial shedding of blood. Why? Because Aaron and his sons needed their sins atoned for, first and foremost. God is a holy God, and you cannot minister to him in an unholy state. Before you can offer up service to the Lord that will be acceptable to him, you must be cleansed from your sin. He's not going to accept service from defiled hands. Not knowingly defiled hands, okay? 
you know, it'd be like donating to a charity that $50,000 that you just swindled from the elderly widow across the street, taking her last dime and putting her in the home. If you are the owner of the charity and you realize where that money came from, you're probably, if you're ethical, not going to accept it because that's dirty money. And neither will the father accept dirty service. You must be cleansed. It's far more serious when you offer up service to God in a defiled state. Aaron's sons, um, Abihu and Adab, I can't remember his name. Aminadab, thank you. Aaron's sons, Aminadab and Abihu, they're going to learn that soon enough, all right, that you don't offer up strange fire or service that's wrongly motivated. And remember that when they made the garments, where did they sew on the, the hem at the bottom of the garments? Bells, bells. Why did they put on bells? Because if he wasn't totally cleansed of his sin when he went into the Holy of Holies, those bells would stop ringing and you'd have to drag him out by the rope attached to his ankle. Can't go into the presence of God in an unholy state. So that's the reason for the sacrifice. But what's the reason for the bread? Because remember there's bowls and then there's unleavened bread and there are cakes and there are wafers. Sounds like a wonderful tea time, doesn't it? Okay. What's that all about? Well, the ceremony for consecration always required bread for fellowship. Now, I know you understand the need for sacrifice, but fellowship? Consecration cannot happen without true fellowship with God. Consecration can't happen without true fellowship with God. You've got to be purified and your sins atoned for, and you must have fellowship with God. Listen carefully, okay? God's not interested in mindless, heartless, ritual service. Have you ever gone into a store or a gas station or someplace where the clerk is absolutely indifferent to your existence? Where they don't even look at you, make eye contact, they might even be talking on the phone to someone else, but they're still technically serving you by opening the till, giving you change and whatnot, but they don't even look at you in the eye. That's not what God wants. God wants fellowship. There's no attending to his interests without fellowship. This is the God who created you for that very purpose. I don't know about you, but I've, I've had a few jobs in my life, a few career changes, too many to count. And I have enjoyed working with some employers and some employers not so much. The ones that were more to me than just a boss who took an interest in me, who became a friend and even a mentor. I enjoyed working for them. That's our Lord and Savior. That's our master. John 15, verses 14 and 15. You can turn there if you like. John, 14, John 15, verses 14 and 15. This is your master. This is what he says to you and to me. You were my friends. If you do whatever I command you, that's John 15, 14. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, 
For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Did you hear that? Are you listening? Wake up. Your Lord, your Master, calls you friend. The Creator, the first, the last, Yahweh, the becoming one, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom. He calls you friend. Now, I'm all into serving Jesus. I guess you know that right now, okay? He is Lord. I'm servant. He's boss. I'm the employee. But he's my God. He is the great I am. And he considers me his friend. Now, that's incredible, okay? I can deal with the employee-employer relationship, all right? That's fine. But friend, that's incredible. I mean, I'm dedicated to his service. I try to do his will most of the time. But I'm flaky, I'm fickle, and I'm foolish, and I fail. And sometimes I fail on purpose. And still he looks at me and calls me friend. John Corson says, this means he doesn't love us because he has to, but because he chooses to. He likes us. We're a delight to his heart. We bring a smile to his face. But what if that's not your reality? Now, I know I'm not talking to anybody who's within the range of my voice, but let's just pretend for a moment that's not your reality. You're not into serving him, and you're not too worried about being friends, okay? Uh, you, you're kind of like the jar of clay lyrics, you know, it seems too easy to call you Savior, but I'm not close enough to call you God. I mean, you're just kind of lukewarm. Right? You believe you got your EBPIP, know what that is? Eternal Barbecue Pit Insurance Plan. But you're not fanatical about Jesus. You're not a Jesus freak. Well, then I direct your attention to Revelation 3, 15 and 16. And I'm going to paraphrase it for you. If you're hot, I can use you. This is Jesus speaking. If you're cold, I can deal with you. But if you're lukewarm, you'll neither be hot enough to use or cold enough to correct. So I will spew you out of my mouth. That's harsh. It sounds harsh. You mean Jesus, meek and mild, is not calling me his friend anymore? No, he calls you prodigal. And it's breaking his heart, guys. You need to repent. You need to change your mind. He'll change your heart. Your friendship will be restored. All right, let's move on. Let's look at verse 4 in Exodus 29. Just turn back there. And we're going to see that consecration ceremonies require a shower. It's always good to shower before you go to a ceremony, right? Gentlemen, how many of you, after working a day on a construction site, showed up at your wedding dressed in your bib overalls and sweaty T-shirt? <laughs> okay, we had a few hands raised here, guys. Uh, I don't believe it, though. In verse 4, it says, Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. So the process of consecration begins with cleansing outside the tabernacle at the door. And notice this. 
This is an inside where you, you know, have some curtains where you can go into and, you know, maybe take a washcloth and wipe yourself down. This is wide open, all right? And everyone, and I mean everyone, all two million of the people who are part of the nation of Israel at this point can see what's going on, all right? Um, you're going to have to strip down to your BBDs and let others wash you. You can't even wash yourself. You just got to stand there and be washed. Think that'd be a little embarrassing for you guys? I mean, how many of you have ever been to a foot washing ceremony? You ever done that? It's a little awkward. Yeah, you know. I remember doing that with my junior hires and uh, they didn't like it at all. Don't touch my feet, get away, it's ugly, it's gross. Well, just think having to stand there and have other people watch you. Well, here's the deal. The cleansing is symbolic. It's symbolic of purity, okay? And all priestly ministries began with cleansing. But really the big deal is this, is that the cleansing was received. They received a washing. They didn't wash themselves. It's humbling because it took place publicly at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the point is, you cannot cleanse yourself. You cannot purify yourself. Have you ever tried to wipe off dirt with your hand that is dirty, but you use a little bit of water? What do you end up doing? You just smear the dirt all over the place. You cannot be cleansed from your sin without being humbled first. When you do something that irritates your spouse, and you realize you have to apologize for it, a couple words that probably are very hard coming out of your mouth. I'm sorry, and I was less right. <laughs> I was less right than you, exactly. First John says, if we confess our sins, sometimes confessing your sins to God, you don't want to admit that you have a problem that he keeps nailing you about. It's humbling, but he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from unrighteousness. Now, when a priest was first called and being officially installed, he was to be thoroughly washed. Now, from that point on, although he, he never again needed a head-to-toe cleansing before entering the tabernacle to do his ministry, he would wash his hands and feet at the laver that stood in the tabernacle courtyard, but he did not need a complete washing. Do you guys remember a story in the New Testament that kind of sounds like that? Yeah, John 13. Got your Bibles? Turn to John 13, okay? Okay, we're not going to get quite as far as I thought we would. In John 13, this is the Last Supper, okay? This is the last night of Jesus' life. Within a matter of hours, actually, he's going to be arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified. 
Okay, so now I get a chance to even take a nap before it all begins. What would you be doing if you knew that that was coming? What would you be doing? Yeah, kind of worried about it, maybe? Maybe telling some friends of yours to go get you a pizza or something? Look what Jesus is doing. It says he got up from the table in verse 4 and took off his robe and wrapped a towel around his waist. And he poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet. Seriously? They should be washing his feet. But he's washing their feet. Drawing them with the towel he had around him. In verse 6 it says, When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Like, it's like, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, you don't understand right now what I'm doing, but someday you will. Peter protested, no, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you'll have no part of me. And Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands, my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Give me a total cleansing. Run me through the car wash. And Jesus says, like I said, Peter, you don't understand. Well, okay, that's a paraphrase. A person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. Remember now, you're going to have to have a sacrifice to cleanse you from your sins, right? For consecration. But what was the second thing you're going to have with him for consecration? Fellowship. And that's what this is about. God is a God who requires communion as well as service. And once you've accepted Christ into your life, you've been washed in his blood, and now you only need to clean your feet and hands to have communion with him on a daily basis. If you walk in the pollution and don't allow cleansing to take place, then you're going to experience a separation from him. Now understand, this is not about losing your salvation. It's about losing intimacy and the power for ministry. Jesus providing for daily washing. 1 John 1, 9, already told you that one, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When's the last time you went before God and you confessed? You said the same thing that he's saying about the sin calling it what it is. Well, once you've done that, once you've owned it, you are forgiven. And then there's a continual washing that takes place. And in Ephesians 5, it says that Jesus washes the church with the water of the word. The water of the word. I like that. The loss of power, the loss of intimacy, disqualification for ministry, that's not something that I want to experience from now to the end of my life. I've been there. I've got the t-shirts. They don't fit so well. It's not comfortable. I want to finish well. So I wash daily. All right. I think, yeah. Well, I think I can get to this next point and then we can stop. In verses 5 through 9 in Exodus 29, you want to turn back there. Um, you're going to need clothing and anointing for consecration. Clothing and anointing. We'll just look at verses 5, 8, and 9. 
Verse 5 says, You shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod and the breastplate, and gird them intricately woven band on the ephod. Okay, and then verse 8 says, Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. And then verse 9, You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute, so you shall consecrate so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. Okay, after being cleansed, the priests had to be clothed. Uh, not in the old clothes, okay? You know, your kid comes home from school all day, running, playing, sweating, goes, takes a shower, and then jumps back into his old clothes again. No, no, that freaks you out, right? Um, so he's not going to jump into his old clothes, and he's not even going to jump into clothes that he brought with him for the occasion. He's going to be given a whole new set of clothes. Now, we went over this in, in chapter 28 about the outfit and all the symbolism that was there. But what is applicable to us, like these ancient priests, is that every believer is freshly, newly clothed in Jesus Christ, in his righteousness. And these garments are provided by grace through faith. Note, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, note that these garments were provided for them. They were at no expense in buying them, nor labor in weaving them, nor skill in making them. They had simply to put them on. And you, dear child of God, here you go, are you listening? Wake up. You, dear child of God, are to put on the garments which Jesus Christ has provided for you at his own cost and freely bestows upon you out of his boundless love. Isaiah 61 tells us that we have been covered with the robe of righteousness and been clothed with the garments of salvation, all right? Revelation 19.8, it says to her, that is the church, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then Revelation 3.5 says that we will be clothed in white garments. So you've got the robe of righteousness. You've got the white garments. You've got the fine linen. But I want you to notice in, in 19.8, is it, I think it's up there on, well, it doesn't matter. It says the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay? You ever wondered what a robe of righteousness actually looks like? and go to Colossians 3.12. You can see it in the window. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on, clothe yourself with tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. And then in verse 14, it says, and above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfection. Did you see that ensemble, guys? Okay, you'd be looking pretty good, all right? Righteous ensemble of the Jesus collection. Tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forgiveness, love. You're ready for the runway, baby. Go strut your stuff. Now, Let's finish here with verse 7, 29, 7. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Part of the ceremony 
this part of the ceremony will identify the person as set apart for God's special purposes. Are you with me, guys? Hang in there. We're almost done. The anointing oil was an exquisite and expensive blend of oil and spice. And oil in the scriptures is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. You're right. 1 John 2.20 says you have an anointing from the Holy One. And Ephesians 1.13 says when you believed in Christ, He identified you as His own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom He promised long ago. How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? How do you know? Speak in tongues? Grab the Christian flag and run around? No. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Always goes back to that, doesn't it? It has a way of going back to that. That's how you, we, and others know that you're anointed and chosen and appointed and consecrated because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're filled with His love. Love for God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love for one another. Love for your neighbor. And how do you access that love? You don't. You grow it. Fruit grows naturally as it abides in the vine. So will that fruit of the Spirit grow in you as you abide in Christ. Well, what does that mean, abide? In other words, are you listening? The master passion of your life is to do His will. To have His interest in mind and only. To be deliberately determined to do His will and only His will and follow His example. All right. We're going to close our service this morning with worship. So Sam, Angel, you want to come back up? And we're going to start off with a rendering of a hymn by Frances Ridley Havergal. You guys heard of her? Yeah. This is written back in uh, 1850, 1860 or so. And it's a, the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. It's a hymn of consecration. Francis was a poet and a hymn writer, but she was totally in love with Jesus. When she was four years old, she began reading and memorizing the Bible. Before she died, she memorized all of the Psalms, Isaiah, and most of the New Testament. She was in demand as a concert soloist. She was also a brilliant pianist, and she could read and understand Greek and Hebrew. She was a scholar. Her biographer says, with all her education, however, Frances maintained a simple faith and confidence in her Lord, and she never wrote a line of poetry without praying over it. So they asked her what prompted her to write Take my life and let it be. And she says, I went for a little visit for five days and there were 10 persons in the house. Some were unconverted and long prayed for. Some were converted but not rejoicing Christians. So God gave me the prayer, Lord, give me 
everyone in this house. And he did. Before I left the house, everyone had got a blessing. All right. The last night of my visit, I was so happy, too happy to sleep, and passed most of the night in renewal of my consecration. We would say that she was stoked, all right? She was stoked. And she said, those little couplets formed themselves and chimed in my heart one after another till they finished with ever, only, all for thee. Wow. Abiding, consecrated, totally dedicated to his will, winning an entire household to Christ. Yeah. She had food that we know not of. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days and let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. And take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it's thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. And take myself, and I will be ever, only, all for thee. Okay? That's part one. Next week, we should be able to finish it, but I can't promise you that. All right. Um, as we get ready now to, to join into worship, I just want to, to say this to you. May the Lord be with you and guide you and bless your life and keep you in the love of Christ. May he increase your burden for the lost and may the anointing of God rest upon your life that you might hear his voice, that you might do his work and that you might walk in his path. Amen? Amen.